0: There are a couple of things that um, I need to say. First of all, that, that you the theme of the central person, character or theme of the Old Testament is Jesus. And amazingly uh, enough, the main character in the Old Testament is Jesus, and everything that The Old Testament deals with can ultimately be um, uh, pictured in Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. So that these Jews who um, grew up and wandered in the wilderness um, had these illustration after illustration of what the Messiah, what Messiah would be when he came. What the Lamb of God would be when He came. What the Savior of man's sin, ultimate sacrificial Lamb would be like. And they, in my opinion, my my belief is that that Old Testament believer was saved the same way we are saved. The difference is that they were saved looking to the Savior that was presented again and again. And we we look back and are saved by looking back in faith upon Him who lived. Now we have a great advantage, of course, over the Old Testament believer in that we have the example of his life and his teachings and his ministry and his death. But in the Old Testament they had these pictures and types of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're trying to discover here. I... I've been laboring over how to make this thing like it ought to be. You know, I, I, uh, I do hope that this study is not just, you know, dragging on and boring. If it is, maybe that's where these folks are. <laughs> Watching Max Humbard or whoever else on TV are. What's his name? Rex. Rick. Now, <laughs> there is a second thing that I, I need to say, and it's this. That When you come to the tabernacle, the tabernacle in everything that's in the tabernacle, in my belief system, is foreshadowing Jesus Christ. For Jesus was the temporary dwelling place of God. In Him dwelled all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And this tabernacle was this temporary dwelling place of God, so that the tabernacle and um, and all of its furniture has a significance concerning Jesus Christ. Now, I must admit that I, I am very much into types and I don't want to allegorize. There's a, you know, I don't want to go overboard, but if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of too much typology. But I believe it's there. And if it isn't, then it is so close to being there that it is, cannot be denied. Okay? Now um, I, I need to show you uh, just a simple drawing what the tabernacle, how it was constructed, so we can see this tonight. It was like that, a, a rectangular building. It was divided into three sections. And this section here is called the holiest of holies, the holy place. The back end wasn't that kind of slanted. It was square off, I think. <laughs> and this holy of holies, holiest place was, was the there was one um, uh, piece of furniture in that place. You remember what that was? The Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a box. It had on top of it a mercy seat, and the mercy seat is just the lid, really, of the box. And the lid, the box, was the, the symbolical dwelling place of God, He dwelt there in His Shekinah. The Shekinah means this, this glory of God that was visible. The visible evidence of the glory presence of God. Now this holiest of holies was, was separated from the rest with, with a veil, and this veil hung there, separated. That's also one in the temple, but there was a veil that separated them. Now the high priest was the only person who went into the holiest of holies, and he once a year so that nobody else ever went in this place where God was dwelling except the high priest once a year on what we know now as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And there's an elaborate ritual that he went through. That's another study. This section here is called the holy place. And that place was where the priests, of the Levites, the priests ministered every day. And there were three um, pieces of furniture in the holy place. Just the priest went in here, but every day he ministered there. And there are three um, uh, pieces of furniture in there. There was what is called the table of the showbread. We're going to talk about these tonight. The table of the showbread. There was the gold, there was the the, uh, candelabra, the candlestick the light of that room. And then there is some debate about this other uh, piece of furniture, but most agree that it, there was a third piece of furniture and it was called the brazen altar or the altar of incense. And it was stationed, it was placed right at the veil before the holiest place. And then there is this outer court where the people brought their sacrifices, these. This is where we are tonight. This position right here. And the instruments that are there, the, the, the pieces of furniture, are highly significant. The table of showbread, the candlestick, the light, and the altar of incense. So, let's look at, first of all, the table of showbread, verses 30, 23 through 30. And you shall make a table of a wood, two cubits long, one cubit wide, one and a half cubits high. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, make a gold border around it, gold crown around it. Remember, gold is the symbol of God, the symbol of the of deity, of the, of the divine. And you shall make for it a rim of a handbreadth around it. Now, every, every um, aspect, every... Uh, piece of information about this tabernacle and everything that goes in it is extremely significant. There's not a word that's not important. And there's not an instruction about how it is to be erected and what it's to go, how to go in it. And every detail about it is extremely significant in my opinion. And you shall make a gold barter for the rim around it. And you shall make four gold rings for it, and put rings on the four corners, which are on its four feet. Four rings, one on each corner. And you shall make the poles of a wood, and overlay them with gold, so that with them the table may be carried. And you shall make its dishes, and its pans, and its jars, and its bowls, with which to pour libations, you shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. So that on this table is the bread of the presence at all times before God. Now if you're following in your, uh, when you, on your worksheet, we're going to um, take a little bit of a look at this table and its contents. Now, I didn't learn a whole lot in English class in high school, although I did uh, minor in it uh, in, in, in uh, college. Hard for you to tell that I minored in English, but, but I, did, I did learn this. I did learn this much in high school English, and that is that when a sentence begins with the word and, it connects it to what has been said in the previous sentence, so that there is a direct relationship and a direct connection between the two, right? So that verse 23 begins with and, or in the King James, it begins with the word also, which is even more um, uh, significant of the connection. So that what he says in verse 23 is directly connected to what is said in verse 22. So look at verse 22. And there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, and from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. And you shall make a table, etc., etc. So that what he's saying in verse 22 is that this ark of the covenant and the mercy seat is the place where God meets man where God and man can fellowship, can commune, where God and man, because of God's mercy, meet together. And then he moves into this section, and he talks about this table of showbread and connects it directly with it. And he's saying, in essence, that what this signifies also is this communion that God has with man. Now, I don't know what you remember about your... um, You know your childhood, or what what goes on in your home now. But uh, most most of us uh, uh, would would agree that the the place of fellowship is usually around the table. Now that's getting to be a hard thing to do. You know, Uh, usually it's a table in front of the TV. You know, (laughs) while we're eating, watching TV. But but I, I, I have a, you know, a feeling that most of us, you know, at lo- sometime during the year, maybe at holidays or whatever, have sat around the table to, to, to have commu- fellowship with one another. As a matter of fact, in, the first, in First Corinthians chapter 10, this table of the Lord is connected directly with this communion that man has with God. And what he's saying in essence is that what this symbolizes here, this This one who is pictured by this table of showbread is the one that makes it possible for a man to commune with God, have fellowship with Him. And it's like such communion that you would have with your family as you sat around the table. And the relationship that that man and God are going to have is a relationship that that is as deep as the fellowship that comes to, to a family around the table. Now that doesn't mean a whole lot to us except, but it did to the God of the, Jew, to, the to the Jews because their God was this God who was totally unapproachable. He dwelt somewhere in the, in the beyond. He was back here in this place right here, and nobody could ever enter this except but the high priest, and there were some awesome things that went on when he went in there. As a matter of fact, that's why they wore little bells on the bottom of their robe so that the people on the outside would know they were still alive as they moved around in there. They thought, you go into the presence of God, you won't come out alive. And here is this God who is so holy, other that he's separated from man. And he's in this holiest place and only the high priest can go in there. And that's an awesome and frightening thing. And yet this God that is being revealed in Christ Jesus is a God who sets the table with you and has communion with you and fellowship with you. And it was an astounding thing. I I, I, I imagine that to these people it was absolutely the most amazing thing they'd ever heard. Now, the contents of this table was the bread of the presence. Called the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. Now, if you're going to read through the Bible or read through the New Testament and you come up on this word right here, you see the word bread, um, and you're going to connect that to a person, with whom do you connect that word? Tell tell me, talk to me. Jesus, yeah. And uh, he talks about the fact that he's the bread of life and a person cannot uh, live except he eats him and and all that kind of stuff. and and he's, re, he, he's uh, referred to refers to himself as the bread. And all through the New Testament, we are we are made aware of the fact that that Jesus is this um, sustenance of life. He's the one you feed on. He's the one that gives um, that makes life full. That satisfies your deepest hunger. And here is this bread on top of this table and and symbolizing this communion with God, Jesus, who not only allows us to have communion with the Father, but He satisfies our deepest needs. And He's called the bread of the presence, literally the bread of faces, the bread of faces, which suggests that, that when you sit at this table, Because of Jesus Christ, you have a face-to-face relationship with God. You can talk to Him face-to-face. He's the bread of the presence. Now there's a couple of things that are about this bread. There are are 12 loaves, 12 uh, cakes of bread on, on this table. I'll put six there and you know there are 12. Anybody have any idea what that symbolizes? 12 what? There are 12 what? 12 tribes? And this bread is, is, is there, there are 12 pieces of 12 cakes of bread to, to, to suggest that the, the, the 12 tribes that he is the one who gives fulfillment to, the, to all God's people and he is the one who enables God's people to have fellowship with him. Now he told them to, to do this, he told him to put a barter around the table. And that border is a crown, a crown of gold, and then he's to make a a rim around the table, a hand's breadth. Now I don't know how far to stretch to take this, but but I want to take it at least this far. When when you've got the bread on the table and it's sitting on a table, and there is a there is a rim around the table, a hand's breadth, it's there for security. It's there for security. I don't know how difficult it is for us to to come to the Bible and and find evidence of the security of God's people. But let me tell you what, it's on every page. That He who who is represented here and these people who are His that are in Him here and are represented in Him here are secure there. I don't know whether you see this or not, but what I see there is this evidence of the security of the believer. That what is God's in Christ Jesus will, not, will never be lost because he's, they, ha, they are surrounded there with this divine presence. And he tells them to take, put, pole, put rings on this table and have poles by which to carry it. And he's speaking of the provision which God made for His people in Christ while they passed through this world. For wherever they went, this bread accompanied them. Wherever they went, this bread accompanied them. And it didn't matter where they were, in the middle of the desert or wherever, the bread of of God, the, the bread of the presence, was always there to feed upon. Always there. To feed upon. Now, let me pause to say parenthetically that, that there are going to be um, uh, circumstances and places in this life where you and I will, will find ourselves. They're going to be um, you know, perilous and difficult. But there's not a place on, in this earth, there's not a place under God's heaven you'll ever be. He'll not be there for you for everything you need Him to be. And the provision He makes for your fulfillment in life is a provision that is there wherever you find yourself. Alright? So across this wilderness they went, and out into this life they went, and into this, uh, uh, these trials and circumstances they went, and all the time they had with them this divine presence, this bread of heaven that meets every need, every need. Now, verses 31 through 40 talk about the lampstand. Let's take a look at this. Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. It's to be made of hammered work. It suggests the suffering, the beating um, that was necessary, that, that was required to make this, beating it out of gold and suggest the suffering that um, Jesus would endure. Its cups, its bulbs, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it, and six branches shall go out from its sides. Three branches out of the lampstand from its one side. Three branches of the lampstand from its other side. Three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms in the one branch above and a flower. Three cups shaped like almond blossoms in the other branch above and a flower. So for six branches going out from the lampstand, and in the lampstand four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers. And a bulb shall be under the first pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. Their bulbs and their branches shall be of one piece with it, all of it shall be one piece of hammered work of pure gold. Then you shall make its lamps seven in number, and they shall mount its lamps so as to shed light on the space in front of it, and its snuffers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made from a talent of pure gold with all these utensils, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown you on the mountain. Now, I'm not going to labor the point. I can uh, uh, see that uh, some of you are saying, what did he you say? You know, what do you just get through talking about? But, but uh, just, just to kind of make a, um, some kind of a, uh, uh, an explanation of this lamp, There there were three branches that went out from one side and three out from the other side. And the purpose of this lamp here was to shed light upon the table. Now, there are two significant um, um, uh, words that Jesus used of himself. The most often used words of Jesus of himself were that he was the bread and he is what? What? The light. And this light was in this place to shed light upon the um, table of the presence. And, 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 and if you counted them, I didn't take time to count them, but it was obvious that, that the uh, Uh, The bowls and the lampstand had the characteristics of an almond blossom, an almond tree, and almond buds, and on and on it went about the almond. So that the significance of the almond must be uh, prevalent in in the construction of this lampstand. Now what do we know from reading Biblical dictionaries and Biblical encyclopedias about the almond tree? Well we know this. That the almond tree is the, is the tree in, in that ancient world that budded first. It gave the first evidences of life. Sometimes, even in February, these almond trees would blossom. And when these almond trees would blossom, first signs of life in the springtime, first signs of the resurrection in the springtime, then you would know that spring was near, and life was near, and the winter was past, and life was coming. And the whole idea of this is, in my opinion, is that this light that was shining in this room was the light of life itself. And all that life suggested, all that life meant to these people, this evidence that the darkness was soon, and death of the winter was soon to be passed, and life was coming. And so when Jesus came, He came into a world of darkness and death. That's the meaning, by the way, of the first miracle that Jesus performed. You remember that miracle? was the miracle in Cana of Galilee, and we turned water to wine. Turn, and, and, and we've all debated, get off on this, is that real, really wine? And missed the whole point. The whole point of turning that water to wine was that Jesus had come to do away with the old system and bring the new system of life. For wine was a symbol of celebration and life. Now, in this dismal and, and dreary desert existence, there was shining in this room, in the room of the presence of our Lord, the significance of life itself. He's coming to bring life. Now, in the history of this lamp, there are actually two places where it's, uh, it, it's referred to in the Bible. After the Pentateuch, only two places. One is found in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 3. And the other time, this, this lampstand is referred to, is in Daniel 5. Daniel 5. Now, does anybody uh, want to hazard a guess as to what went on in Daniel 5? Little little quid, little trivia, biblical trivia. You remember when Belshazzar, yes sir, one of you had it? When Belshazzar got into his big banquet there, you remember in Daniel and, uh, and, and over in uh, what is now uh, modern day Iraq? And Belshazzar had taken some of the vessels out of the temple and had desecrated them. And one of those vessels, one of those things that he took out of the temple, was this lampstand. And with this lampstand, he 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 saw this hand on the wall, and they brought this lamp in that was this this one, and they held it up to see what the writing was on the wall, and it was the writing of judgment. Thou art weighed in the balances and are found wanting. First part of that verse is, the God in whose hand thy breath is, thou hast not glorified, thou art weighed in the balances and are found wanting. Now, both places where this lampstand is referred to, after the Pentateuch, in both places, it refers to the judgment of God. So that when this light came into the world, what light does is expose the darkness you've ever been out in the yard and uncovered some, you know, you've uh, maybe moved an old piece of board or something, and these little varmints that are under there, these bugs, and when they're exposed to the light, what do they do? They flee, for the light, for the darkness cannot dwell with the light, and in this and in, in suge- in the suggestion of this lampstand is is that our Lord comes a living Lord in light. And when He comes in light, He exposes our darkness. For God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Now in the remi- remaining moments in there are ten, I want us to get to the third piece of this because this is such a thrilling thing. I... I, I, I uh, you, you may be totally underwhelmed, but maybe we can find something you like. And we're going to come to chapter 30. Now, we're skipping over some because chapter 30 deals with the altar of incense. And there is, after, you know, there is, as I mentioned, some debate about this other uh, piece of furniture here, but it is, I believe, in the um, Holy place this altar of incense. Now let's look at and I'm going to have to read the entire account and then we'll go back. So get your Bible and follow with me. It says Moreover you shall make an altar a place for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit and its width a cubit shall be square its height shall be 2 cubits its horns Shall be of one piece with it. Remember that on this altar of incense there were horns which symbolize this strength and power. Anytime you see in the Bible reference to his horns, it's a reference to strength. Please put that in the back of your mind there and watch this. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, its top, its sides, all around its horns. You shall make two gold rings from under its molding. You shall make them on two side walls on opposite sides. They shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. And you shall make the poles of achaica wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the Ark of the Testimony where I meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. And When Aaron trims the lamps at the twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout the generations. You shall not offer any strange incense on this altar or burn offering or meal offering. You will not pour out a libation on it. And Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. The Lord also spoke to Moses saying, now watch this. When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them. That there may be no plague among them when you number them. This, This is what everyone who is numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 giros. Half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more. The poor shall not pay less than the half shekel. It's the same price for everybody. When you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, and you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it to the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall also make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing. Aaron shall wash itself and himself. There it goes to the end. Now, well, let me, let me uh, have, you know, give me five minutes of your best attention. There are two altars in this place. One of them is the altar of sacrifice, where sacrifices were brought. Then there was this altar of incense. And this altar of incense contained this uh, fragrant incense that that rose up, that ascended up before the presence of God daily. And every day the priest, when he went into this place, he put this incense that rose up in to the, into the uh, of presence of God. Now there are some who suggest, there are uh, various interpretations of this. Many who believe that all of this represents Jesus would say that this altar of incense represents His intercession on our behalf as well as His praises. And suggest that when atonement was, is made and when the Savior made that atonement, shed His blood for our sins, then what he does now, his his ministry now is a ministry of intercession and that his prayers for us rise up before God every day. Now if that's not true, then the New Testament, much of the New Testament has to be removed. You know what Jesus is doing right now? He's before the presence of the Father bringing intercession, praying for you, praying for me in this service. He knows how bad I need it in the first place. He's praying for you who are hearers. And His prayers rise up to, to the Father day and night on your behalf. And your security, your salvation is secured by His intercession. His intercession for you. And whatever happens to you tomorrow and the day after, just remember that Jesus has been praying for you. And He knows everything that you face everything you do. You go to school tomorrow, kids, and you're tempted. Some of these guys that give you a hard time, some of these peer uh, groups that give you a hard time, just remember Jesus praying for you. And not only is He interceding on your behalf, if He's Praying on your behalf, He's bringing bringing not only your needs before the Father, He's bringing your praise before the Father. And His praise rises up to God day and night. That's the incense, the altar of incense. Now the, the significant thing about this is, is that there is a connection between this altar and this altar. This altar is mentioned in the verses preceding because this is the altar of sacrifice and atonement and there's fire burning on this altar that consumes the sacrifice and they took the fire from this altar and and ignited this altar that burns the incense because what happens over here as Jesus intercedes on your behalf is because of what happened over here when He died on your behalf. And so this altar leads to this altar. And what Jesus did here was to shed his blood for you. What he does here is to intercede for you. And his intercession is based upon his vicarious suffering death. That's what makes us have impact, you see. And uh, and here's the father. And He's hearing the intercession of His Son. And His intercession is based upon His sacrifice. And so He doesn't plead your innocence. See? He pleads His blood, you see. He pleads the sacrifice. And that's what brings the impact of this. Now, there's, a second, there's something else about this that gives a little bit of uh, trouble. And that's this, this uh, uh, payment of atonement. Did you notice everybody, he numbers everybody. Now, why would you number your people? Well, I've got some books in my library. If I number them, I number them because they belong to me and I want to check them out. I, I, I used to uh, pastor uh, ranchers and, 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 and farmers out in West Texas, and they'd go out about every day and count the cows. You know. And uh, they enjoyed that, you know, so, still do, you know. And uh, some of the guys that have cattle here, I know, he well, I went out and counted my cows. <laughs> well, you know, one, two, just counted, and like numbered them. And didn't count their neighbors, I've noticed, he's so counted their own, you know, and, and, and it, was, it was a part of their ownership. These are mine, so I count them. And uh, you have uh, these people numbered, that's why the book of Numbers is there, is that the numbering is the... Uh, the significance of the numbering was to point out ownership, okay? So that he said, after these people are numbered, that is, after these people are mine, they're to bring this atonement uh, payment. The atonement payment was a, verse 13, a half a shekel. The shekel is 20 giras. A half a shekel would be half a 20, be how much? My scholars here, front row, be 10 Ten, yeah, ten gira. Half a shekel, uh, if, if, if a shekel is twenty, half of it would be ten. Is that, is that right? Am I, I'm all, okay, ten. Now, ten is a significant number to the Jew. The Jews, the numbers, Jewish numbers are highly um, symbolic and highly si- significant. There are um, uh, ten, was the number, What's this, ten was the number that symbolized completion. Completion. If a person was complete, he had ten fingers on his hands. He had ten toes on his feet. Ten is a number of completion. That's where you get the number 1,000. Ten raised to the third power. Ten times ten times ten is 1,000. It's a symbolical number of the 1,000-year reign. So you got this completed number, 10. Now, the, the atonement payment was to be a payment that was complete in number. I love it. Now there's only been one payment of atonement that's been complete. That was the payment of atonement that was made 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ paid the final payment once and for all. Now what He's saying, I'm convinced is this is that now that you belong to God, now that there is, you, you belong to God, there is this atonement payment you must make, you must give to God, in order, because you're His. But He makes the atonement payment available to you. He not only, He requires the atonement payment, but He pays the atonement payment for you. Isn't that what the New Testament says? Is that man, because of his sin, is required to pay the price of that sin, which is death. But Jesus paid the price for us so that I present my payment to God for my sin. And the payment I present is the payment God gave me to pay. And that was the payment of His own Son, His own Son's atonement. There's a second thing that's significant here. And that is, He says, according to the shekel of the sanctuary... Now, what is he talking about according to the shekel of the sanctuary? Oh, listen to me. We're out of here. There, this, this shekel was a weight of measurement. As a weight of measurement, became the measurement, the weight of measurement. And the shekel of the sanctuary was the standard by which, that's weight there in case you're wondering what that is. Yeah. The shekel of the sanctuary was this standard weight of measurement that all other weights uh were judged by. That is, it, it, you know, is this really, you know, is this really a, a a shekel? Well, let's get the shekel of the sanctuary and see. So they'd bring in the sex, the shekel of the sanctuary, and they'd compare this this shekel to it to see if it was legitimate, because the shekel of the sanctuary was the standard by which all weights and measurements were judged by. Now, what's what happened? When Jesus died on the cross and made the payment for our sin, was it enough? Was it sufficient? Was it it the real thing? And so God says, okay, we'll take the shekel of the sanctuary and we'll bring it over here and we'll see if this payment Jesus made is accurate, is adequate, is the right measurement, is sufficient. For man's salvation. You know what the shekel of the sanctuary was in that analogy? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So that when Jesus died, He paid the price for our sin. When He was raised from the dead, God said that price was enough. Hallelujah. And when He raised Him from the dead... That became the standard by which all atonement has to be made. That is, when he paid the price for our sin, that was the price paid. That was the price demanded. Was it enough? Yes, it was. How do we know it was enough? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. And so, this altar of incense here is an altar that suggests that God demanded the payment of death. Jesus paid it all. And now he has the right to stand before God and intercede as your mediator and intercessor with praise and intercession day and night. And all of this, all of this is pictured in the Old Testament in the, in the holiest place. Anybody have a question or comment? We're going to pray and we're going to be dismissed with that lesson. Hey, let me, let me tell you something. When you want to know about Jesus, you don't have to look in the New Testament to find Him. And it's been a it's it's a it's a it's a thrill to me to be able to come to the Old Testament, the book of the Jews, and see what Jesus is like there. And that's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, It is absolutely astounding to Jesus that Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, didn't know Jesus. He said, you mean you're a ruler of the Jews and you have all this stuff from Moses and you haven't seen me there? Because he's there from the beginning, the Pentateuch to the end. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the marvelous picture, Old Testament picture of Jesus Christ who is our Savior and Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for interceding for us, for paying the atonement price for us, for even now, before the Father, praying for us. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you and thank you. For it is in your name that we gather, in your name we worship, in your name we pray. Amen. Good night, everybody.